Hello and welcome to This is a Token with Alex Monroe, the podcast that celebrates all things jewellery. I've spent half a lifetime designing and making jewellery, but what really interests me is what it means to other people. This is a podcast where we ask our guests about the jewellery they cherish most of all. We'll explore the moving, fascinating and often surprising stories connected to each piece and those emotional bonds that we just can't do without. My guest today is the journalist, television presenter, broadcaster and writer Jeremy Bowen. Jeremy was born in Cardiff and his father Gareth made what I've always thought was one of the most powerful and certainly moving pieces of radio that I've ever heard, reporting from the awful Abba Fan disaster in 1966. We'll put a link to that on the website. Jeremy joined the BBC in 1985, where he still works today. He's worked as a war correspondent for a lot of his career, reporting on conflict from all over the world. But this work has not been without considerable risk and cost to both Jeremy and his colleagues. His list of awards is far too long for this introduction, but it includes all sorts of Emmys, BAFTAs and pre You'll have to go on Wikipedia to see them all. Jeremy is also an author. Lots of fascinating books. Maybe start with War Stories, but Six Days and The Arab Uprising are all great reads too. We'll put all those links on the website. And um, I know I'm in trouble here today because, as you know, I can be a little bit disorganised here on This Is A Token. And one of my favourite and most recommended podcasts is Jeremy's Our Man in the Middle East. Anyway, he's a well-seasoned professional, so I'm going to have to try and rise to the occasion today. I would say Jeremy's often associated with his work in the Middle East, but he has a huge wealth of experience of conflict from all over the world. And I'm especially grateful to him today because he is literally just back from reporting on the war in Ukraine, which I must say I found really distressing just to watch on the telly. I imagine Jeremy might have needed a few weeks to decompress, so I'm so grateful that he's taken the time to pop round to my house on this beautiful sunny spring day so it's with huge thanks that I say welcome Jeremy Bowen to This Is A Token. Yeah, you have it slightly on one side for the piece. Whatever, whatever. For the what? Normally, it depends on the mic, but if you go into the middle of it like that yeah. and, you, and you go, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, sometimes the peas pop. And the way you get over that, usually with mics, is to put it Same. slightly side on. Well, they were side on because we just didn't, we just put okay, them down earlier. Right. So, Jeremy, thank you very much. Alex, for thanks for asking me. What you didn't say is I haven't had far to come. Well, no. When we say we're neighbours, we are like proper neighbours. We're next door neighbours. We yeah. live in a funny little street here because it's like I've podcasted half the people in the, <laughs> in the street. <laughs> one I couldn't get was um, Desiree, who's who's on the Desiree, other side. Desiree, she's on the other side, yes. She'd be a good one, wouldn't she? Famous vocalist. <laughs> <laughs> we have known each other for... Well, since you bought your house here. When was that? Is it 20 years? Quite likely. Probably 20 years or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was lucky enough to meet your dad. I mean, I guess, was it inevitable that you'd become a BBC reporter? Like, that report, that Aberfan report, is it mm. something that sort of moves you? Uh, oh, I, th- I find it tremendously uh, moving. First of all, the subject matter. 
In fact, it was my father doing it. And it's Abervan is between Cardiff, where I grew up, and Merthyr Tydfil, where he grew up, certainly till his teens, and more towards Merthyr than Cardiff. And so this is was, you know, it was home territory for him. His, his uncle had been, I think I'm right in saying, a pupil at that school many, many years before. It's just from our listener, in case they don't know, Abervan was a terrible tragedy where a, a coal tip slid down onto a... Onto a school, school, onto a school and killed a generation of village school children oh. in a village, in a mining village in South Wales in 1966. There was something about his, um, his reporting, the way that his voice, you know, he was quite sort of matter of fact and he told the story but there was something about in the back of his voice that you yeah. I don't know what it well, was but he was... was from there you know in my reporting career in the main I've always reported about the trials and tribulations of others he was reporting on the trials and tribulations in a place where virtually he'd grown up yeah yeah beautiful bit of radio yeah. I suppose you were bound to um not bound to but like you know become a BBC man as well well my parents both worked in them my mother was, was a photographer my dad was a journalist and from the age of his late 30s worked for the BBC in, in Wales so you know in my house the news was always on we yeah. always had loads of newspapers all the weeklies you know I'd come home for lunch from school and my mother would be listening to the world at one on Radio 4 you know yeah. it's so it's not so much that it was inevitable because I've got four siblings and well a couple of my my two sisters did a little bit of stuff years ago but they don't they didn't stay with it and my four siblings aren't in journalism so I suppose it wasn't inevitable but for me the thing is I think if you grow up in an environment I mean for example you know with with what you do the field of design art jewelry for your kids is very familiar ground and the media yeah. news journalism very familiar ground for me i remember when my dad yeah. worked at a newspaper in cardiff and the south wales echo western mail going down to the newspaper offices in those days they used to use paste and all sorts of things to set up yeah. pages and uh, i'm playing with the pots of paste on the desk as a little kid and i remember the you know the, the thunder of the presses when they started rolling in the building and so you know it was it was familiar territory yeah, yeah. if your dad's a doctor you might become a doctor yeah no, of course. I mean, all my kids went to they've gone to art school. Well, there you what, go. What I, what I failed to tell my them point. is that going to art school is one of the surefire routes to to kind of poverty and destitution. But you know, it, it worked out all right for me. So yeah, I'm not going to discourage them. Right. Got quite a nice answer. Yeah. I kind of know you because we might be around at your house having a meal or something like that. And um, one of the things I love about coming around to your house is that I find you to be, I don't know how to put it, but you're a hugely sort of generous raconteur. You've got some good stories, but it, it doesn't feel egocentric. It feels like you're being generous with your stories. Oh, anyway. thank you. I'm glad you look at it that way because, you know, what I don't, never want to do is bang on with, you know, war stories. The thing about journalists, particularly foreign correspondents who spend years and years travelling to quite exotic places, is that you, you do have a lot of stories. You know, I've seen a lot of things, seen a lot of people, and I, I try and not to get too carried away. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting. I feel like you're an incredibly, a very generous host because, firstly, mm. you get fantastic top-notch wine. Thank you. Top-notch yeah, food. The age I'm at now, I think <laughs> life's too short to drink bad wine. I don't have enough years left. But you are a hell of a good cook. Thank you. Which nobody can deny. But also, I love your generosity with your stories because it somehow, somehow feels like we're all included mm. in them. But I was hearing about some of the stories with the watches and I thought, oh, this would be really good to have you on the podcast because we haven't yeah. done watches. And also, you know, we get fewer men than women because often men don't well, have that too much jewellery. jewellery. Well, I don't yeah. have any jewellery, really, unless you no. count watches as jewellery. I've got a few players of cufflinks. But these days, you know, we live in informal times. I very rarely even wear my cufflinks. I think we can count watches. Yeah. Well, 
I think watches are interesting. My kids don't have a watch, as far as I know. My daughter was recently 21. I was thinking, my goodness, what on earth shall we get her? And of course, there was a time where you might say, well, I'll buy you a nice watch. Yeah. I remember my mother had a very, very tiny 1950s gold watches that her parents gave her when she was 21. Beautiful. And I don't know what happened to it. Uh, yeah, I didn't give my daughter when she turned 21 a watch because she's never worn a watch. She wants to know what time it is. She looks at her phone. Well, exactly. That's the thing is, so you're never more than a couple of feet away from your phone. Yeah, yeah. The time on it. And, it's and it's accurate. And it's accurate. Sometimes these wind-up watches come in a minute to two hours. I met an explorer who had just, you know, traversed. We were on yeah. holiday and he just sort of traversed the Arctic, you know, first uh-huh. person to it solo or whatever it was. Yeah. He'd been sponsored, I think, by, uh, you know, Rolex and they'd given him this yeah. Amazing watch, and he yes. said he said, but he had a he bought a sort of Timex digital because he's yeah. going. I also needed something that, <laughs> that actually worked in, in, in freezing, you know, wet conditions. Well, the thing <laughs> is, is that you know, once everybody, if you needed a watch, you needed one of these miracles of miniature engineering yeah. on your wrist if you want to know what the time yeah. was. I mean, do you remember the first digital watches yeah, when they I came? Do. I remember a boy at school. I was rich kid, right? Yeah, he was a rich boy. His parents bought him one of these LED watches and it was a black screen and you pressed a button and a digital... Red numbers. Red numbers came up. That was it. That's all it did. We were like, we were like what? And that it was is incredibly, amazing. This was in the 70s. <laughs> I did my A-levels in 1978. So this was probably a couple of years before that. And, you know, it was the time when pocket calculators were coming in and stuff like that. And so, yeah, he was, he was probably a bit of a flash Harry. And he had this thing, and that's what it did. You press the button, you saw the time. But the fact it was, you didn't have to wind it up. Yeah. It ran on a battery. It was not made of metal. All these things were very, very novel. And of course, now you can buy a watch that does 10 million times more than that for a fiver my, at a um, petrol station. I, I don't have a watch. I have an Apple watch because I had some. I wanted to sort of monitor my heart. Uh-huh. And um, I don't know, but I, it can probably do more than the first Apollo yeah. spacecraft could do. Oh, you know, it's yeah. got everything on it. I don't I yeah. quite There is more com- computing power, apparently, in a modern car than in Apollo 13, mm-hmm. which got into trouble coming back from trying to get to mm-hmm. the moon. Great, isn't it? They had to do it all with a slide rule and, and figures and they had to work it out for themselves. But your car has more computers than that Apollo special. Right. Well, I don't know if mine does. And yours doesn't because you haven't got one. Oh, oh, you have. You've got a, I've got old... a very old car. That has no computers on board. But my... No, I got rid of that. I mean, I'm a green guy. I got rid... When the uh, emissions regulations came out, I got rid of my car. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm just... Too, too tight to pay the fees. Well, I just, I've got a car, but I just never use it because I'm too tight to pay the fees. <laughs> and also, yeah, you know, yeah, think about the environment. Of, I do think. Living in inner London, you've got to think about the, yeah, yeah. the atmosphere. Watches. Watches, yeah. Do you want to... I've right. got, brought some watches with me, actually. Yeah, please. Oh, please. Oh, there's one There's one that you... I thought there's one that you couldn't bring. Because were, were you going to talk about your, your dad's watch? Yes. Well, first off, my uh, my, my younger brother's got it, actually. He's, oh, do you he, know where he, it is? He's the custodian. It's his mm. watch now. Um, nice. And it was a watch that his father, my grandfather, worked for Guest Keen Steel for many, many, many years. And when he had done... I think 40 years. Yeah, I think it says in the back, 1924 to 1964 or something. They gave him a gold watch. 
he still worked on a few years more than that. And he worked uh, He worked for Guest Keen. He was an accounts clerk at the steelworks. And he came from a family in Merthyr Tydfil. You know, his I think his dad was a coal miner. And uh, and in my family, on my father's side, they all came from industrial jobs in Merthyr Tydfil in South Wales. But he had got to the grammar school, my grandpa, Emlyn. So... When it came to get a job, his dad said he still had to leave school when he was 15 yeah. or whatever it was. His father said, you know, I can't afford to keep you there. Besides, you've got to earn a living, for God's sake. Yeah. But instead of having a manual job like his dad, who worked underground, he got a job as a clerk at the steelworks. White collar job. He was, because he'd been to a grammar school. He was so, the beginning of the Bowen family um, crawling out of the, yeah. <laughs> the mine or something. Because your, your son now, is he's, he's a highfalutin, isn't he? Well, he's, both he's my kids a, are at university. One's at Birmingham, the other one's at well, Cambridge. Well, they're both highfalutin. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, um, well, you know, that's how, how families change, I guess. Because, uh, you know, education. My father was the first in, our, in his family to go to university mm. and I guess that's how it happens but yes I mean my grandfather he was a very intelligent man but his education was truncated when he was 15 mm. so he didn't get as much as he could have and and then you know in today's world he'd probably end up university mm. but because he came from this quite poor background in South Wales mm. it was quote-unquote progress I suppose for him to not get a job where he got dirty every day instead yeah. he, he had a, you know it was literally they were called white collar jobs where you'd go and you could wear a white collar and he you know I think he did the wages and like figures and I'm not too sure what he did but he did it for many many years and as a tribute his employers gave him a very elegant gold watch I don't know what make it was but it is actually made the case is made of gold it's very plain it's that you see you know on websites you look at classic watches it's that 1960s look there aren't numerals there are little little, d- um, little lines little lines yeah yeah, yeah do you yeah. think we can get Matthew to take a snap of it I'll ask phone Matthew to take a picture and send it yeah 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 well I like a classic watch it'd be interesting to see yeah that. no I will do I'll get him to I'll get him to do that then my father wore it when his father died my father used to wear it my father had a bit of a thing about watches so my my father wore the watch and then when he died my mother after a decent interval gave it to my brother which is fair enough yeah and it's got to be he'll um, look after it down. yeah um, he'll look after it and yeah, no, I might give it to his, uh, his son it's got to go to someone right and yeah I think it's nice fun I'm very happy for my brother to have it yeah, yeah. He's, well, he's a delighted so. yeah yeah so with me on my wrist today is my uh, Rolex GMT. I think watch aficionados call this the Pepsi because the mm. colours on the dial are the same colours as a can of Pepsi. I like that. I think mm. they were originally had a metal bracelet. And my partner Julia gave me that a few years ago. It's a, I suppose you call it a classic watch or pre-loved or something. Uh, I think it's from the 80s, but it, I've had it for about, I've probably had it for about 10 years. It's lovely. We want to photograph that. We'll find yeah. some, some white paper to photograph yeah. it because it is a classic. I would say it's. Um, it kind of looked quite sort of late the seventies, eighties to me. Yeah, so. it's. A, I think it's a designer. I think the design originally, someone told me, was um, Pan Am pilots had them because the idea is is that dial that moves around. Yeah, which is a bit jammed on this one actually. That you can tell the time in two different time zones mm-hmm. you know, because. You move it, and those so the numbers are in different places, but the pans obviously stay the same. So you, at the moment, it's twenty to twelve in London, and in um, 
Ukraine, it would be 22, <laughs> for example. So being a pilot, back in the day, like late 70s, early mm. 80s, if you wanted to sell cigarettes or something cool to men, you'd generally have a pilot yeah. sort of, you know, walking through the airport. Possibly or with a beautiful air hostess on his elbow. <laughs> yeah. They were a very fashionable job. Now I shouldn't think it's quite... The classic advert for that, actually. There was, I don't, I don't know if you remember, there was an ad for a pipe tobacco called St. Bruno Roughcut. If you <laughs> no. Google it, they're hilarious. <laughs> There's a man striding through a village, smoking his manly, the manly smell of a pipe. <laughs> and suddenly, beautiful young women start popping up from houses and gardens, sniffing the air like dogs, and they start running after him. And he's got a very large Bond villain bodyguard with him, and he's striding along. And by the time he gets down to his boat, because of course he has a boat, and there's a tender going to the boat as well, uh, there's a crowd of 40 hysterical women chasing him because they love his pipe so much. And then he turns around, he selects one lucky girl who then his large, odd job style uh, bodyguard this is, this is so grabs, grabs her. <laughs> And puts her on the boat. So and wrong. she looks back smugly at the disappointed females on the dockside. And he, meanwhile, ignores her and just puffs his pipe. How did we, we how have did moved on a bit. We get through the, the 70s and 80s? It's got every... <laughs> it ticks every box of what is so not acceptable. So wrong. And, and, uh, and smoking... Vast like, sexism. It's all in there. <laughs> it's incredible. And this, this was our youth. I, I didn't come out of that smoking a pipe, I have to say, but I do remember watching it on telly. Well, I did used to smoke, but I gave it up the oh, minute I, I realised what, what a stinky old unhealthy mm. thing it was to do. So. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. I bought... I bought um, uh, Are we allowed to talk about BBC Watch? Yeah, I've got my oh, BBC got Watch. Let's look at that. This yeah. is the watch I, I was given one. by a mate called CWC that make mostly military watches. And when I became a reporter at the BBC, I was given this watch as a working tool. The BBC, they didn't call it a, a watch. They called it a wristlet stopwatch. And as mm. you see, it has a, mm. it's, a... It's got a timer. There you go. Brilliant. That was on. a nice and I turn it off and then it re-registers like That's that. really nice. And on the back, if you look at it, it's got, I guess when I retire, they might ask for it back. In fact, they used to ask for them back. It's got a BBC number. BBC In 0113, this watches. You've been shot at. I mean, I've seen you come back here with bandages around your head. Yeah. They bloody ask for it back. When I started, like the, the old joke at the BBC was it's the only company that when you retire, you have to give the watch back <laughs> because it wasn't just reporters. People who worked in foreign news were given, producers would be given a stopwatch, a very nice, mm. my dad had one. It was a very nice round stainless steel stopwatch, mm. completely, you know, analog. I think you had to wind them up. But when I was, uh, I was a graduate trainee at the BBC and one of our instructors, a man called George Major, who was a very nice man, he had an absolutely beautiful watch, which he loved. He loved, and he loved the BBC and he loved his watch. And his watch was almost a symbol of his love for the BBC. And it was a beautiful watch from the, the 50s uh, when he had started. And I remember his retirement due and they made him, and he was such a BBC man, to be honest, She's never done it. He gave them back the watch and he loved the watch. And then at his leaving due, they gave him a, a watch. It was just not a nice watch. It was an okay watch. 
but it wasn't a nice watch. What they should have done is give him a box and then give him his old watch back. Because the thing was... Well, the thing, I wonder if someone things? was selling them out the back of the building, frankly, because you wouldn't be given a reused watch. No. But when I was given this watch in 1985 or 6, 6 maybe, 5, I can't remember, it was brand new. Mm. And then when I slightly changed my contractual, I can now reveal this, my contractual status with BBC. For a while, I went off the staff and went onto a contract. BBC made me do it for some obscure reason of their own. The person who was responsible for watches said, Jeremy, you've changed your contract. You're no longer on the staff. You're now on a 12-month contract. Subsequently, I went back on the staff. Could we please get your wristlet stopwatch? back you're no longer entitled to it i was wearing it at the time when she said that to me <laughs> i think she knew it too and i just pulled the cuff of my jacket down a bit further and said i'll bring it in and she no. never asked again i no. think she knew that there was no way i was ever going to give it back i am a supporter i love the bbc and i'm a supporter of the license fee but i don't want any of my license fee being spent on some watchwoman who goes and asking well people to be honest she did a lot of very good admin but yeah thing was these days <clears throat> <clears throat> of course, it wasn't many years after they stopped giving them out. I was probably one of the last because in the mid-80s is when very cheap digital timekeeping yeah. was coming in. And, you know, people have spotted my watches when I've been on TV, taken freeze frames and put them on Twitter and commented about them. I've had people commenting about both these watches wow. on Twitter because they've spotted them, watch enthusiasts. About both Coca-Cola and BBC? Pepsi. And Pepsi. The, oh, the God, sorry. Rolex sorry. Pepsi. Other and the BBC C, CWC watch. So I looked them up on websites mm. and I saw that there are aficionados who, who follow these things. I mean, for me, they've both got, that's personal. The Rolex has got sentimental appeal because, of course, Julie gave it to me and it's a very nice watch. Mm. So I have this loyalty about how do I wear them. So when I go on a trip, I wear the BBC watch. Mm -hmm. When I'm in London, I wear the Rolex. Nice. Nice, I um, like that. I guess back in the day, particularly with kind of live broadcasting and stuff, there must have been meticulous planning, and you'd have to you'd have to have a piece that was sort of fifty seconds. It's still the case. Yeah. It's still it? the case. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if I do a report on the ten o'clock news, you know, we negotiate a bit about how long it's going to be, and if you are more than well, I have a bit of a reputation for coming in a bit too long sometimes, but only on big stories, so it's okay. But um, but if you are if you are more than ten seconds, fifteen seconds longer than you say you'll be, then you know it's not a good thing because it mucks up their timings because the program yeah. is the same length. If there was a huge story, they sometimes phone continuity at the BBC and they ask for more time, but very often they don't get it. Yeah. So. It just means if someone comes in way over, if it's way under, they have a hole in the programme, but that's very rare, it's way under. If it's way over, it means something else has got to go. You can sometimes see politicians are aware of that sometimes. And so when you're interviewing, you can be talked out, can't you? They're they, so they, aware they, of it. They think, well, he's, he's only got 30 Live seconds, interviews. so if I just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can hear people on the Today programme every morning doing that. I mean, yeah. it's pathetic, I think. <laughs> well, I guess it's all learnt technique and yes, stuff. Yes, technique, yeah. And are Media you... techniques... I don't know if this is the time or the place, but are you okay? Because I texted you when you were out in um, yeah. Ukraine because I, I was so upset sitting in my comfy yeah. front room watching it on telly. Because um, look at it now. We're here, sort of beautiful. All the flowers are out and oh, the no, sun's shining. And you've just come back from, oh, you know... It's still cold in Eastern Europe. <laughs> the winter, when, when I got there in February, and I was there from February through to the second week of April, my God, it was cold. It's cold like we have no idea 
in the UK. You know, just every day, really, really cold. <laughs> Grinding. Mm. Maybe that's why they're sort of eating all this, all this sort of boiled pork fat and stuff because fat, it's, maybe you need that well, to sort of. The, the, you know. the hotel where we stayed was very much. Uh, it was in peacetime. Apparently, it'd been a very fancy five-star hotel, but the food was very, very diminished while we were there. We ate in the car park in a sort of shelter on the minus two level. I've lost weight. I mean, I needed to, so it was not the worst thing in the world for me. But the food was very limited. But I went a few times to um, a canteen which uh, they were doing for the military when mm. they'd give them mm. decent food. So you had a full range of Ukrainian delicacies. And as condiments, among the things they offer are peeled cloves, I should say, of raw garlic. I saw that. And also chopped up lard or fat. So it's, you know, they have lard as a... As a and chopped up fat as a condiment that <laughs> you sprinkle on. And, you know, uh, many years ago, uh, when I was covering the wars in Bosnia, mm. I was in a real eastern Bosnia very cold in the winter and I was in a place with the UN trying to get into a besieged town we didn't succeed in the end uh, but we were stuck on the side of the road for about three or four days and one of the guys who was there was the Finnish army's leading expert on cold weather survival a man called Risto he was a colonel and he was always going on about the internal heater and we were being accommodated. We spent a little day outside. It was freezing. And I was sleeping in a barn. But we were at a farm. But in the mornings, they'd invite us into the one warm room, which was the kitchen, because they had a, a solid fuel range going. And they give us breakfast and it was inevitably for the four or five of us who were staying there a massive omelette with great nodules of fat in it not meat fat and I said to Risto I said oh jokingly because it was delicious I said it's not very healthy he said yes it's very good it's perfect he said because to keep warm you need the internal heater and the thing that fuels the internal heater can be fat because fat takes longer to digest than lean so as your body fights to digest the fat you you get warmth coming from inside so that's why he said in cold countries they yeah. eat a lot of animal fats he also said this is another good thing to re remember on a cold day he said avoid drinking if you can tea or coffee first thing or whenever because both of them are diuretics they make you pee and when you pee you lose body temperature oh, wow. so this is the Finnish army, you know, wow. Finland, they know a lot about cold weather. Yeah, so the Finnish army, Colonel Risto from the Finnish army said, eat fat, don't drink tea or coffee. One gives you body heat, the other one loses it. Mm -hmm. How about that? To our listener, have a look on Jeremy's Instagram because you, you did some, some nice little posts. And oh, yes, yeah, so the, uh, of the fat. Of well, that, bowls of fat and bowls <laughs> of garlic. And actually, it was really sweet. I mean, I, I like garlic. I chewed a couple. And uh, I think my colleagues probably enjoyed it for the rest of the day as well. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's um, good. Do you have a kind of war story watch? Yeah, I've got another, wa I've yes. got another watch here. Yes. So... In fact, I had I'm, two I'm so like glad I've this. seen it. I've heard about these. This, I've never seen this is, I bought this in Baghdad. And in the 1990s, it doesn't work. I've tried to get it fixed. I don't know what's wrong with it. In the 1990s, when Iraq, which was in those days under Saddam Hussein, was under sanctions, you could buy all sorts of stuff. Mm. And there they, they were often things which had been bought as gifts by the state to be given to people or 
tools to be given to people and people sold them off. So you get these DuPont lighters, which apparently in the world of lighters, a DuPont lighter is the lighter. I don't smoke. I'm not bothered about lighters. But you could buy Iraqi Air Force Breitling watches, which were bought to give to pilots. And if you look on, this is one here. And if you look on the back of it, there is the crest mm. of the Iraqi Air Force. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I had two because the other right. one was actually nicer. It had a bigger face and it was completely, it had an automatic movement in it. This one is quartz. Yeah, there's, and, a, little, and, there's uh, a little screen at the bottom that looks yeah. like, so is it, does it not just need new well, batteries? No, or no, no. I took it to a shop and I don't know, they couldn't do it, but maybe mm. I just need to take it to the right place because it did used to work. I used to wear it. Mm. And uh, I paid $100 for it in Baghdad about, God, I mean, best part of 30 years ago, probably. Mm. And yeah, the other one was really gorgeous. It had a big face. I think this is probably, it's got digital on it. It's probably early 80s, maybe. Mm. The other one was from probably 10 years older. And it was nicer. But uh, my dad, we used to play bowls when he was in his old age. And he said he had a friend who was a watchmaker who would fix the other one for me. So I thought, all right give it to him and then I don't know what happened my father was got ill I never got it back basically I think his friend the watchmaker if anyone's listening <laughs> it's mine that one I imagine, in Cardiff I imagine the watchmaker might not even be a rabbit if anyone no, knows a watchmaker yeah. with an Iraqi so I wonder Air what happened. I, wonder, I always wonder what, what happened to that because it was a beautiful watch and I'm quite sorry that my bloody mm. father didn't look after it better but it was my fault probably I should have given it to watches of Switzerland in Bond Street or something yeah. to get fixed yeah. but no it's, it's a nice sort of got a stainless steel bracelet it's a nice black watch. face it's quite a cool I'd watch say quite a classic 80s look i'm not I try, i'm not a watch wearer but i kind of wonder it feels a bit james bond a watch well, it's nice a watch i like watches i think they're quite manly things and i don't think well they can manly. be lady ones too can't they i, I mean those, so. yeah. those traditional lady watches which are so here's an interesting fact men's watches used to be a lot smaller hmm. i know this because after my partner julia gave me this rolex I thought I should return the favour, and I originally I brought a brand new Rolex. She didn't like it very much, so I took it back. So then I went and I I asked a, a bloke I met who's an expert. He works for one of the glossy mags about watches, and he suggested Rolex from the late sixties. So I I went and, and got one, and it's because you know she's not very big, as you know, so it's got a fairly small face, mm. not like those tiny minute women's watches you, mm. you see. But on my wrist, it would really look small. But it was a man's watch back then. The the, the, the trend or the habit mm. was much smaller watches. I mean, now you see people sometimes these days with enormous things like saucers on no, them. No, it seems to be a lot about show, isn't it? So you, you're wearing these great things. Those things you want so to be... flash, yeah. yeah. So this one, the King Air or Air King mm. or something like that. It's a lovely looking, really plain, classic watch of the 60s. Mm. Uh, but it was a man's watch, though a man wouldn't wear a watch that small these mm. days because it would look a bit tiny. This is from Baghdad then. Yeah, that's the the Breitling. Were you living there? No, I used to go there. I used to go there when they gave me visas, which wasn't always because I lived in Jerusalem at the time. Mm. And I was coming from the, you know, what is sometimes known in Arab countries as the the Zionist entity or the Zionist fragment. In fact, they used to say that on the visa application form. Have you ever been to the Zionist fragment or entity? 
Right? <laughs> uh, they couldn't say the word Israel. No, no, I used to visit there a lot and I'd been there a lot subsequently. You can't really get these things anymore. But back in that time, in the time of sanctions in the 90s, against Saddam's regime, people were flogging anything they had, frankly. I mean, they didn't have the money, so... Was it for dollars? Or is that yeah, I paid right? $100 for yeah. that one. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's worth more than that. Even then, it felt like a Breitling watch for $100 was a bargain. Yeah. I've got a couple of other watches I feel watches like here. I've missed out on watches yeah. in my life. So I've, I've got, never worn I've them. I've got a watch here <clears throat> with Saddam Hussein's face on it. <laughs> this is classic. Which uh, <laughs> I, I bought <laughs> these at the time of the 1991 Gulf Wars. The jokey wow. things, really. One's got Saddam Hussein, the other's got King Hussein of Jordan. I've got two others. I can't remember where they came from. I think I've got them in Moscow. One's got Gorbachev and one's got Maggie Thatcher. <laughs> Where'd you get these? I think I've got them in Moscow. <laughs> we'll photograph these and put them um, on the website. Thank and you. The, uh, I've also got another one which I couldn't find I was going to bring to show you. One of the, um, the group that currently rule Yemen, or at mm. least rule part of it, the Houthis. Mm. I was given a watch there by... Well, it was sent to me, actually, after I'd interviewed him. It was through a, through a colleague. One of the leading Houthis, Mohammed Ali al-Houthi, sent me... I suppose it was a gold watch. I don't, it's not a gold watch. It's just, but it's got the Houthi. It's got the Yemeni crest on it. I think when they took over the country, they, they found probably boxes of them and they give them yeah. to people. And, uh, and he also sent me a, actually a fantastic curved daggers they wear in their mm. in these very elaborate belts that mm. they have. So he sent me one of those. Which are mere tokens, I declared. I have to hasten to add. But the uh, the thing about in the Middle East, sometimes, especially where their leaders have a bit of a cult of personality, faces on watches are a thing. Mm. You know, you would frequently see in Saddam's Iraq, you'd see people with not a cheapo. This is a, something I bought for a couple of quid in a in a street market or something, probably. But you you would see quite fancy brands, mm. but with a Saddam face on them. You know, quite good Swiss watches and they're very good Swiss watches. This is you hear, look, I hear it's really not, tinny. That's not made quality. Of plastic. You know, if I rattle, if I rattle the Breitling. That's got some substance yeah. to it. And once I was another, I'll give you another Middle East watch story. Before the 1991 Gulf War, I went on a trip around Britain's allies in the region with uh, Douglas Hurd, who was then oh, the, yeah. the foreign secretary, on a VC-10 run by the RAF, which had very small seats, but very good food and excellent wines. It wasn't small seats for the foreign secretary, but for the hacks, <laughs> we had small seats. And anyway, we stopped, where were we? One of the stops was Bahrain. Mm. And I had heard one of some of the old old hands on the trip, I was very young, said sometimes these golf rulers, they can give you something fancy. You might get a gold watch or something. So I thought, oh, that might be nice. And just as we were leaving, a junior diplomat, we're literally on the tarmac getting on the VC-10 in um, Manama, the capital. Just as we were leaving, this harassed third secretary at the embassy, it's probably an ambassador somewhere now, came sprinting over with a cardboard box. He said, we forgot to give you these. They're presents from the ruler. And he handed out these watches in boxes. I thought, my gold Rolex, finally. But it was it was on the same <laughs> was, level. It was the same level as these Saddam ones. Yeah, well, you if know. there's a box for it's kind of kind of thing which you could buy for, you know, four quid in a street market, probably. Was there a story about a pilot, was it in Bosnia, flying in with a watch? I remember you were telling me something. Pilot Ooh, with a watch. And, and so it was a sort of, um, I think it was in the, you know, Bosnia-Herzegovina sort of conflict and some pilot giving you his watch as you flew in somewhere or something. I can't remember. What the, well, I don't remember that. I do not remember. <clears throat> I mean, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but we used to fly into Sarajevo on the UN airlift. 
and that's how they brought in relief supplies to Sarajevo mm. when it was under siege, which it was from the spring of 92 till the late summer, early autumn of, uh, of 95. And, you know, it was a terrible event. More than 12,000 people were killed in Serb shelling, etc. I don't remember being given somebody's, yeah. somebody's watch. I do remember when we went on the German, the Germans were providing the aircraft for a while and we got on board and it was quite common when you, you know, you sat in the back with a cargo, they were the Hercules uh, C-130 cargo planes and you sit in the back with the, with the luggage and it was quite common when they'd come around and say, we're entering Bosnian airspace, could you put on your flat jackets and helmets? Because sometimes they'd be shot at and the bullets would come through the, fa- the fuselage of the aircraft and some people had been hit. So it was advisable. But we were on the German one and he said, would you kindly put on your flat jackets and your parachute? <laughs> I've never done any parachuting oh, in my life. Thanks. He said, I said, what? <clears throat> he said, yeah, you have to wear a parachute. So he showed, I put on my parachute, sat there, my helmet, my would flight you, jacket. Would you know, because do you have to pull something? He or, said or? there was a barometric, it worked on altitude. God, I hope he that said, worked. yeah, exactly. He said, <laughs> he said, don't worry, you'll just jump out, it'll open. <laughs> Yeah, Luckily, I, we didn't have to do it. Thanks for saying don't worry, because yeah. I'm totally at ease now. We're only flying at 15,000 feet. It'll be fine. See, you've had a bit of a time because I guess it was the same in Afghanistan, you know, and the same in um, in Ukraine now because you can you might get into summer, but you've also got to get out, right? Yeah. And it looked pretty hairy. When I was driving into Kiev, the capital, um, you may recall that there were lots of news reports about a 40 or 50 mile long, long yeah, the- Russian convoy of armour that yeah. was heading to attack the capital. And then, first of all, encircle it, besiege it, take it and my brother who actually lives next door but one to where we're we're talking he was texting me links to you know because the 3 4g was working Mm. and he was texting me links to articles in the newspapers saying this big russian armored convoy is coming in and he was saying are you mad are you mad Turn around, leave now, leave now, leave now. but i thought well i'm committed now i thought but i was a bit apprehensive certainly I was certainly a bit apprehensive going there. What I thought, actually, was even if they try and surround it, they'll want people to leave and they'll leave open corridors. But once I'd been there for a few days, I realised that Kiev is an enormous city. It's really sprawling. Mm. There's a massive river down the middle. I mean, a massive river. Mm. The Dnipro River, it makes the Thames look like a, a stream. And so I just thought there'll be a way out. And plus, one thing I've learned over the years because it was not my first potentially dodgy situation, is that it's always much worse before you get there than when you're there. You know, we as human beings, we're quite adaptable. We can normalise things quite easily. And, you know, it is normally not as bad as it as it seems, because once you're there living it 24 hours a day, you adapt. Yeah, although you do, you see things that 
humanity does that we don't mm. see oh, and, yeah. and I, that's why I just thought it was weird that's why I was saying what a beautiful sunny spring day it was mm. here because it just seems so I don't know it seems strange for me it must seem strange for you that, that one minute you're witnessing these things yeah. and I guess you know you may have to revisit this because there have been other times haven't there where you've been asked to, to be a witness if there's any court cases or anything later on mm. you know you, because you're sort of first on the ground and an independent observer I, te- I testified in four different trials at the former Yugoslav war crimes tribunal in the trials of the two main Bosnian Serb leaders, political leader Radovan Karadzic and the military leader Rakum Mladic, and also in two other trials, which were more group trials of Bosnian Croat warlords, basically. And they all ended up in jail. And I paid a very small part in doing that, helping them get there. You know, I was just, I only testified about things I'd seen. And, um, I'm very was very happy to do it too, and I'd do it again if I could. Mm. You know, I did some stories of war crimes in Ukraine. You know, we went along. There was a motorway going west, and found in just a hundred, two hundred yard section, there were about twenty bodies of people who had been shot by the the Russians, yeah. clearly by the Russians. That was one but of those stories that I saw that I yeah. found pretty hard to watch. Oh, well, and we sanit we you know we have to we sort of sanitize it quite a bit too in terms of what you see mm. because. You know, the bodies went from, you know, you could see the bullet holes in their faces and Eesh. others were very burnt, mm. barely recognisable, but recognisable as humans. And, I mean, there was one which was the body of a woman, very, very burnt. But I thought initially it was a child, but then I saw that the legs had gone. I mean, it was just awful. But no, I've seen a lot of bad things. But one thing I would say is that it is far more difficult emotionally and more affecting when you're talking to human beings who are left behind. I did a story of a poor woman whose son was killed by the Russians and she had to bury him in her garden, a woman called Irina. And they shot him in the street. She had to go out and get his body, put him in a wheelbarrow. She was on her own. <clears throat> Take him back to the house, his dead body, dig a hole in the garden and bury her son on her own in the garden. And she was just, oh my God, she was so grief stricken. It was horrific. And it is far worse as a human being talking to someone like that because life has been broken mm-hmm. by what's happened than seeing a bunch of dead bodies. I mean, it's horrible and they're all humans and we found out about who some of them were. But when you're dead, there's nothing to be done. But when someone's alive, they have to go through carrying it for the rest of their lives and it's a horrible, horrible thing. We just feel so far removed from it. All well, we're very lucky, Alex, in this country. We are, to be honest, most of us, I'd probably include myself in this. You know, we don't know we're born mm. because we have, yeah, we grumble about things. Life isn't perfect. A lot of people are hard up. Prices are rocketing. You know, politics has been very divided in recent years. Uh, a lot of anger. But I'm telling you, compared to a country that's been invaded or a country that has a civil war or a country that collapses, our lives are really easy. Really easy. And there are safety nets, people around the world don't know anything like that i think one of the things that struck me is how you feel like history is all in the past so it's always such a surprise when something like this happens but but there's a hell of a lot of history ahead of us as well and and, and things do happen you know and and, and i dare say before any sort of conflict i think people saying gosh this couldn't happen in in this day and age and then it does and it's i suppose for you it's um I suppose there's a sort of there must be a familiarity. Well, one of the I tell you, one of the appeals of my job over yeah, I've done it for many years. I worked for the BBC 
as of this month for 38 years and most of that time I've been a reporter and most of that time I've been a foreign correspondent. One of the appeals is when you're at a place and you think, my God, this is an incredible event. What I'm seeing is everybody who watches the news is in the world today mm. is interested in what I am seeing and it's my job to tell them about it. Mm. And that's uh, actually, it's a great challenge. It's a bit of an honour, as a matter of fact, mm. it's a privilege. And, and working for the BBC, you know, we now reach worldwide, I don't know what it is, half a billion people a mm. week or is it a month or maybe it's more than that. I lose track of the figures. Anyway, lots, it's lots, lots and lots of people. And I know that the things that, I will be writing and reporting and saying on our different platforms, as we call them, will affect people's opinions and help shape opinions. So that's, uh, I feel, yeah, that's a sense of responsibility. No, it's brilliant. It's yeah. brilliant. And it's great for all of us because you're doing it, you know, you're informing and hopefully changing things. I feel a bit of a dull art because uh, I left uni about the same time as you did and started making jewellery. And all well, I've done is sit in my workshop and make them. Yeah, but you've got a great <laughs> body of work. Come on. I mean, there are people, well, people all around the world who've got your, wearing your jewellery. I remember different strokes. For I different remember folks. going to the pub, having a brilliant drink on Christmas Eve. And my brother-in-law, Simon, who's in the army, was mm-hmm. there, and you guys were talking about a lot of these conflicts where you've both been. And uh, I was feeling like, come on, can we, can we bring the conversation around <laughs> to flowers or something? <laughs> or, or, yeah. or pretty bits of jewellery. But um, anyway, brilliant watches. We're going to photograph them. Jeremy, thank you very much for your time today. It's a pleasure. I was going to bring in the rotary watch I've got. Oh, what was that? Can... Well, it's one my dad gave me when I was 21, but mm. which I still cherish. I knew where it was, but I was in a bit of a hurry. <laughs> brilliant. Photograph away. Thanks, mate. Thank you very much for for joining today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you'd like to see some of the pieces we've been talking about, or for more information about any of the issues we've discussed, please check out our website and follow the links to the podcast page. You'll also find information on how to share your own stories, give a bit of feedback, or have a look at all the jewellery-related things I've been up to recently. We've also got some great jewellery-making tutorials on our YouTube channel. There's lots to see. Just go to www.alexmonroe.com.